G'day, I'm James Atfield, host of The Green Place. Scientists warn that emissions from greenhouse gases is triggering global climate change. They believe that a temperature increase of as little as 1.5 degrees Celsius in global temperature will likely have a catastrophic impact on our planet. Extreme weather events such as floods, storms, droughts and heat waves will have a huge social and economic cost. Melting ice caps will cause sea levels to rise and flood coastal cities and entire island nations. Water scarcity and crop failures will cause food shortages and trigger unprecedented movements of people within countries and across national borders. Climate change will be responsible for irreversible damage to nature and potentially leading to mass extinction. And this could all happen within human lifespan, leaving our children and grandchildren to cope with the results. This is why Philip Shabkoff is a guest on The Green Place. As one of the first journalists in the world to cover climate change, he's the perfect person to discuss this crisis and potential ways to forestall failure. Phil, welcome to The Green Place. Thank you. You've had an incredible career to date, having worked at the New York Times for 30 years. Was it during this period that you became interested in the environment? Yes, I was overseas as a reporter for The Times in 1970 when Earth Day took place in the United States. If you don't remember, Earth Day was a big celebration by people around the country, trying to remind people that the environment is in danger and urging that things be done. I was transferred back to Washington that year, and they asked me what I wanted to do. I said, I'd like to cover the environment because the Times had nobody covering the environment full-time. I was told the environment was not important enough for a full-time reporter. And I went on to cover other things like economics and the White House during the Nixon and Ford administrations. When I finished there, I told them I would like to cover the environment. And I said, okay, go ahead, but cover other stuff as well. And it was not until President Reagan became president and made it a political issue, the Republicans so I didn't want anything to be done about the environment, that it became a full-time beat on the New York Times. Politics is always of interest to the newspaper. That's amazing. So you truly were at the forefront of environmental journalism dating back from the 70s. You were definitely one of the first people to be talking about it that I know of. Assuming that our listeners know next to nothing or very little about climate change. Could you offer a brief summary explaining how humanity is impacting the environment? Yes. Toward the end of the 19th century, a Swedish Nobel Prize chemist named Svante Arrhenius found that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere retained heat and radiation from the sun. And as more carbon dioxide rose, the more heat would be retained. In recent decades, measures have been taken of carbon in the atmosphere, and they have been rising steadily ever since. And not only carbon dioxide, but other greenhouse gases like methane have been rising, and they have risen to the point where the climate is drastically changing. I mean, we have seen in recent years, or even this year, wildfires all over the world, floods, droughts, hurricanes more intensive. And 2023, the average temperature 
of the globe is higher than it has been in over 100,000 years. So if this trend continues, all life on Earth, including human life, is going to be in big trouble. It's been a very interesting summer to be in the US and North America. I think they've been referring it to it as the summer of disaster on the news, which it feels like every time I turn on the news, there is a new disaster happening. So it's definitely at the forefront of people's minds now. But back in the 70s, when you first started covering the environment, there must have been some climate change deniers. So do you think that people are starting to accept that climate change is real? Um, I think a growing number of people around the world are accepting them. They can't deny what's happening right before their eyes. There are still a lot of deniers, mostly on the political right and from corporations, particularly the fossil fuel corporations coal and oil, but the evidence is right here in front of us. You'd have to be an idiot to ignore it. But there are unfortunately many idiots in the world still. Well, fingers crossed we're making some progress towards being more accepted. I know from a personal experience in Australia, which is my native country, it feels that maybe five to 10 years ago, it wasn't being taken anywhere near as seriously as what it has been in the past 18 months. And hopefully that continues to grow like that. And hopefully Australia is reflective of the rest of the world. Let me tell you an exemplary story. I started writing about problems and dangers of climate change in the late 1970s. In the early 1990s, when it was becoming very clear, my stories were becoming more urgent. The editors of the New York Times removed me from the environmental beat because they considered my coverage too alarmist. Now, 25 years or more later, they have a full-time team covering climate change. So that has certainly one indication of what's happening in the world. Definitely an indication that people are waking up or have woken up to the issues. So you've written a number of books on environmentalism. So, yes. and you've just indicated that you think that the, the environmental movement has evolved over recent years. Do you still think it's got a little while to go before this is the number one agenda on corporations and governments list? Yes. Environmentalism has become a mass social movement, but it still lacks the power to make profound changes in the political climate, so to speak. To get to that point, the movement is going to have to acquire political power. And I think to do so, it's going to have to merge with other sectors of the society that need change, like civil rights, women's movement, free speech movement, and labor movement, all of which are still overpowered by corporate money and political power in this country. On that, you said in this country, do you think there is a difference between the United States and European countries or countries in Africa or Asia, or do you think this is very much a global issue that needs to be addressed at a global level? No doubt it's a global issue. And unfortunately, the United States, which used to be in the forefront of dealing with global environmental problems, has now fallen back. And you know, most of the leadership is coming from Europe and other nations now. Countries in Africa, I think there's a recognition of the issues, but they do not have the resources to deal with such big problems. And the developed nations in you know, the 1982 World Earth Summit in Rio, nations pledged to give money to the developing nations 
to help them meet climate goals. And most of those pledges have not been honored. And then from that 1982 conference, I think then we moved on to the Paris Accords later on. Do you think we're taking enough steps at a global level to combat climate change? Because I know in the Paris Accords, a few signatories saying this is what we're going to do. But do you think we're going to achieve that? Not at the pace we're going now. I think, again, the promises made at Paris are mostly honored in the breach or dishonored in the breach, really. I think President Biden is doing something. Remember, Trump pulled America out of the Paris Accords. Insane thing to do for the welfare of American citizens, but that's Trump. We could be in for an interesting couple of years here in the States, depending on how things fall on the political agenda, I guess, over the next 18 months or two years. What do you see as some of the challenges and opportunities associated with renewable energy adoption around the world? Well, the technology is certainly developing. Transportation, electric cars are here, high-speed railroad is here. Advances are being made to with hydrogen power. I think probably in not mine, but in your lifetime, James, you'll see hydrogen power come into use perhaps even fusion and nuclear energy. Oh, that's been very illusory. I think there is a will to develop this technology. On the other hand, the petroleum coal industries are still fighting every inch of the way to keep their grip on the energy sector. And it's going to take some political doing to beat them back. You just mentioned nuclear energy. There needs to be a lot of pushback on nuclear because of the safety around it. Do you think that that is possibly our most realistic way of achieving net zero and mitigating climate change is by leaning upon nuclear? Well, that depends on the development of technology. And I mean, if they could develop the safe fusion reactors, yes. But I said, you know, that's not yet been achieved. And of course, there's the issue of what to do with the spent fuel. Nobody wants to accept a repository for that spent fuel. It's a problem that still has to be solved. If we could get to that position with fusion and spent energy problem solved, uh, yeah, it could be a major factor. I don't see it coming yet. We're still a while off. In a new name for peace, you wrote that environmentalists are well aware that the threats to human health and welfare caused by technology can be addressed by better, more benign technology. During your career as a journalist, did you notice partnerships between the technology industry and environmentalists? Yes. You know, there's a few good companies like Patagonia, but that has not really happened. One of the things I said that the environmental groups themselves might have to get into that business to make it happen. That's not happening either. I've recently read the biography of the founder of Patagonia. I found that very interesting read of how, you know, it's still a very profitable organization can sort of the one with the environment. So I think when a lot of people think that if you're going to have the put environmental issues first, you sacrifice profit. But I recommend people reading that book because it definitely puts that myth to bed. It is an organization that I'm sure everyone walking around has seen people out there in Patagonia gear and been to a Patagonia shop. So it's a very interesting read. And I definitely recommend people check that one out. So here at the Green Place, we want to highlight the work that entrepreneurs in the climate space are doing. During your time covering the environment, is there anyone who stands out as an outstanding innovator? In what field? I mean, as an environmentalist, as a business? Well, both. 
if we've got time to hear about both, then I would like to hear about, you know, yeah. both business and environmental. Well, yeah, there are a lot of people in the field who have done amazing things. This guy, James Gustav Speth, Gus Speth, who was one of the founders of the Natural Resources Defense Council, went on from there to found and run World Resource Institute and went on from there to be dean of the School of Forestry and Environment at Yale University. An amazing guy. There are many, many people like that in the environmental field. I wish I could name them all, but I can't. Uh, as I told you, my memory for the proper names is gone. Does it concern you that environmental agencies that were set up in the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, seem to be becoming less independent now than what they once were, as we're we're seeing corporate donations to some agencies and even things like the conference of the parties this year. I know it's not a, an agency, but being out of a petroleum state this year rather than from, say, a more environmentally friendly state. Do those sort of things, do you think, water down the environmental movement? I think so, yeah. I mean, not all of them, certainly. But some of the environmental groups have, as you say, taken money from corporations. But even more, they think there's a role forward by working with corporations. It's called the third wave of environmentalism. And in some cases, that's a good thing, but it could compromise them. But more than that, I think some of the original fire that led to the formation of these groups has been dampened down in recent years. I don't know why, but... They're not as combative and aggressive as they used to be. Some of them are, but some of them are not. So is there anything else you would like to discuss or cover in today's conversation? Well, climate change is a real existential crisis. What we are seeing now, which is very bad, is only the beginning unless we fully address it. And we cannot fully address it with Band-Aids. I mean, we're going to have to change almost everything, not just the energy we use, but a whole economic system. We cannot go on with an endlessly expanding economy that consumes resources and disposes of waste. We cannot have continents, a, a political system that allows power to climate deniers like the right-wing Republicans. We have to change the way we live together, the way we live with the earth. And unless that happens, climate change is going to sink us. This idea of continual economic growth doesn't really, continual consumption, it doesn't really add up. If you sit back and, and think about it, I don't think, and I think that a lot of modern day economics is built upon that continual growth, which isn't possible. So I, I do hope and think we do need to reassess our whole economic policy and way of life. Good luck to that. Well, I'm hopeful, but I also at the same time a realist that I understand that's a big task ahead and possibly a long way down the track. I don't know whether that one's in, in well, my lifetime. I have, some, I have some hope too, James, and it's because of you and Ted Shabakov and young people around the world who, unlike their parents and grandparents, seem to understand what's going on and what's at stake for them. And I think maybe you just might be the agents of the kind of change we absolutely have to have. Fingers crossed. And I think on that positive note, I'll say thank you for sharing your perspective. That's it for this episode of The Green Place. 
visit greenly.co to learn more about environmental.